Well, good morning. Good to see you all here today. <clears throat> Please turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll read that now and then get back to it later in the service. While you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, though, I have to say that as someone uh, whose last name is Gruendijk, which is solidly Dutch, uh, growing up here in Southern California, I was a very lonely man. Until I was in my 40s and went to Grand Rapids for the very first time, which is the epicenter of Dutchdom in the United States of America. And uh, I, I have to say, it, it reminded me of that line in a John Denver song where he talks about going home to a place he'd never been before. Because I felt right at home, I looked everybody square in the eye. Uh, they were all as well-fed as I am, uh, uh, equally as uh, frugal and uptight. And uh, it, was, it was great. No one asked how to pronounce my last name. They just read it and spoke it. So uh, great things ahead for you, Kristen, in uh, Grand Rapids in Michigan. What a state. It's beautiful. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Thus far God's word. Well, the Bible is full of surprises. It's full of surprises. Everything in the Bible is a surprise. And the reason is because there's nothing in the Bible that would naturally occur to us. That's why it all had to be supernaturally revealed. So I'm preaching a series in the early chapters of Genesis about three years ago. And I, I was surprised to learn that animals and humans were both created on the same day. Now, evangelicals don't want to be confused for animals. So they either accentuate the, the differences between humans and animals, or they just distance uh, humans and animals altogether one from another. But uh, the Bible tells us that God created humans and animals on the same working day. So it should, shouldn't surprise us that we share some similarities with our day six friends. So there are animals that um, express emotion, animals that use tools, animals that create culture, um, animals that, that love to play, 
Um, you know, who doesn't love to play with your dog or your cat? So there's a sense of playfulness with animals. In fact, there are some things that animals do better than we can. So for instance, an eagle's vision is eight times sharper than a human being's. Um, a dog's sense of smell, this is fascinating to me, a dog's sense of smell is 10,000 to 100,000 times greater than a human being. I mean, can you imagine what a rose or a, a gardenia <laughs> smells like to a dog? Unreal. And as my, my hearing, even in face-to-face -face conversation, uh, noticeably diminishes to, to myself, whales can hear, not just across the pod, but for miles and miles and miles on end. Surprising. Well, here's another surprise that I came across when I was in those early chapters of Genesis, and it's this. God is a giving God. Now, at first blush, it may not seem so surprising because he gave us the, the heavens and the earth and our lives and one another. But when you get back in and you start to drill down, you begin to see things that God has given us that I think you'll find as surprising as I did uh, a few years ago. So, for instance, Adam and Eve picked death. God gives them life. Uh, Cain takes a life, and God gives him a life in the person of his son, um, Enoch. Uh, humankind deserves the flood. God gives them the ark. Right Now, they didn't all take the ark, but it was certainly there for them to take, and it was given by God. And, and it just keeps going on through the Old Testament. So Israel prefers Egypt, and God gives them the promised land. Uh, David chooses adultery. God gives him Solomon, whose mother is Bathsheba. Uh, Israel prefers Babylon. God gives them Jerusalem, and it goes right on into the New Testament. So we choose the wages of sin, but God graciously gives us the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul makes that very clear. So that surprising observation leads to yet one more, and it's simply this. As people of a giving God, we too should be giving persons. Giving is a habit that reflects God's image in us and is a means of his grace through us to others. But it, it's a habit to which we are not naturally inclined because we're takers, right? We're grabbers. We're, we're users. And our inherent inclination to take is exacerbated by the me-first society in which we live. You know, where hubris comes before humility, comfort before conviction, pragmatism before principle, swagger before sportsmanship. That's one thing I have to say about moving back to Los Angeles is uh, listening again to sports radio. Man, it's, it's all about swagger and the money. Sportsmanship, that's, uh, that's a 21st or 20th century uh, uh, whatever. But it's not 
common just to us and the generation in which we live. It goes back and back and back. So um, um, consider the Old Testament. Consider the, the constitution of God's people as a nation upon crossing the Jordan River, right? So now they're in the promised land. They're all together. What's the first thing with which they have to deal? It's grabbing. Grabbing. Remember Achan? He takes the, the designer coat from among the stuff that was uh, forbidden there in Jericho. And what does he do? He lies about it. And he pays for the lie with his life. But then you get it again in the New Testament. What, what's the first thing with which the church, upon its constitution, has to deal in the book of Acts? Lying. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira. You know, try to skim some off the top of that real estate deal. You know, grabbing first, then lying, and trying to cover up for it. So our sinful grabbing tendency runs deep in our legacy as well as our own lives. So how do we grow in the godly and gracious habit of giving? Well, first of all, by thoughtfully considering what the scripture has to say about it, that was habit number one at which we looked a few weeks ago. Then uh, steadily growing in that habit by way of prayer, that was habit number two, which of course leads to furthering a lifestyle of worship, a la Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, which was habit number 3. Now, before we look at what the Scripture has to say about giving, uh, I, I want us to be very clear about one foundational fact, and it's this. God owns everything. Everything belongs to Him. The heavens belong to him. The earth belongs to him. Everything uh, on the earth and in the heavens belong to him. Uh, Psalm 89.11 sums this up beautifully where the psalmist says, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. So everything belongs to God, which means everything that we have belongs to him as well. So our money, our riches belong to God. And so he warns his people, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Deuteronomy 8, 17. Our own lives belong to God. So the psalmist confirms the earth is the Lord's and those who dwell therein. Psalm 24, 1. Your life, my life, everybody outside, everybody's life belongs to the Lord. And that fact that everything belongs to God needs to stay with us. You know, in positive terms, we need to remember it. In negative terms, we shouldn't forget it. Otherwise, according to the law and the poets and the prophets, we run the risk of becoming full and proud, scoffing and denying and saying, who's the Lord? Now, even with such a clear warning, our tendency toward grabbing, toward, toward taking, still works its way in and through our serpentine hearts. So, 
I grew up on a postage stamp sized lot over in Whittier. Um, our neighbor's back door, 13 feet 4 inches from my parents' bedroom window. So we knew the Hickmans well. Last 14 years, I've been living on five rural acres in Indiana, portion of which we cleared off and built a house, um, five acres with a woods and a creek and a couple of clearings and uh, farmland that's contiguous to 20 more acres. In fact, one of those clearings, the one just below our backyard, uh, was bigger than a neighborhood park in the suburb out of which we moved in Chicago. I mean, it just blew my mind. Five acres on which I cut down trees and, and bushes. In fact, I'll always remember uh, sitting on the deck one day. I knew I was no longer living in suburbia because I was sitting on the deck, working on my chainsaw, and listening to country music. <laughs> That would in no way have described me uh, before moving there. Uh, mowed brush and grass, built trails and bridges, and all of that brought me a, a great, I think appropriate, sense of satisfaction. But you know what? Every once in a while, especially in that big clearing, that sense of satisfaction would turn into a sense of self-exaltation. And, and, and I would look around and glory in my property. Look how much land I own. My trees. Sometimes I'd try to begin counting them. Too many to count. <laughs> my trails that I had blazed with my Sid and my weed whacker and my hand push lawnmower and, and all of that. And in a weird way, I, I could identify with Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar standing there looking over the city and, and saying, even within his own heart, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? Well, my five acres, uh, no Babylon, but uh, I think you get the point. So I'm with my middle daughter, at the um, county library one day, and we're in the archives, and we're looking up plat surveys that contain our property that go all the way back to 1860, so that's as far as we could go. And uh, one of the things I learned is that uh, persons other than I owned my land. <laughs> my land was owned by persons other than me. And I was, you know, we were flipping through these things, and I'm, you know, my land, my land. And then I'm thinking, well, who, who owned it before all of they did? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The earth is the Lord's. The Lord owned it. The Lord owns everything. That was a good lesson. Because you know what? <laughs> this morning... Somebody else owns my land. <laughs> and I'm living back on the little lot on which I grew up. So if everything belongs to God, then the lesson is this. None of us own anything. 
We are stewards. We are caretakers. That's what God created Adam and Eve to be. But Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. And uh, true to family form, that's what we want to be as well. Like God. Uh, the late Ken Conser, who was the second president of our denominational seminary back in Illinois, spoke to our greedy tendencies in, in some pretty bracing terms. Listen to what Dr. Conser had to say. We must give up all of our wealth. We must own nothing. We're only stewards of what God owns. We are to abandon completely any claims to the wealth of this world. It's not our own, and we do not have ultimate control of it. So, with the Lord's help, we want to consider how to turn away from that natural tendency to grab and uh, uh, toward the supernatural one to give. So, consider how the Lord encouraged it first in the Old Testament. He um, commanded his people to give their money in five different ways. First of all, there was the Lord's tithe. That's in Numbers chapter 18. And uh, the Lord's tithe was 10% of one's income, and it was given to support the priesthood, so God's work among his people. Then there was the festival tithe. That was Deuteronomy chapter 12, another 10%. So now we're up to 20% in uh, giving, and that was to support an annual national feast to build community among God's people. Then there was the poor tithe, that's in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, that's another 10%, but it was given every, uh, over the course of three years, so 3.3% uh, per annum. So now we're up to almost 24% a year, and the poor tithe was given to Help the poor. <laughs> then on top of those tithes, God's people were directed to uh, let the poor glean from the unharvested corners of their farm fields. And then from time to time, pay a temple tax for materials used in offerings. Now, not to pay any of these offerings was to rob God. You say, well, how, how is God being robbed? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything, and it's, it's all his, right? And that's why years later the Lord indicted his people by saying, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. And yet you ask, How do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. Either by shorting God or not paying them altogether. Malachi 3, 8. See, the deal is Israel owed the Lord not only their lives, but their liberty as well. I mean, it was the Lord who freed his people from a life of slavery under Pharaoh and into a life of freedom under him. So God had every right to require from his people, roughly 25%, of what each of them had. But wait, there's more. There were five involuntary taxes, but there were two voluntary taxes as well. The first one was um, uh, the first fruits offering. That was in Numbers 18, and it was given at the outset of the harvest. 
before the entire crop had been brought in. So it really was a great exhibition of their faith because uh, no matter how much more or little was yet to come, that first part went to the Lord. So uh, they had to trust that he would provide for them uh, full or lean in any given year. And then there was a free will offering. That's uh, seen in Exodus 25. And an example of that was when God directed Moses to uh, uh, collect from the people for the building of the temple. So, you know, think about it. They're already giving almost 25%. They're already giving uh, first fruits on top of that. And yet God tells them to test his faithfulness, to drill down a little deeper and try his grace and see if he wasn't faithful. And they did. In fact, their response, uh, their, their grace giving, if you will, on this occasion was so great that Moses finally had to say, enough, we've got it. You people have been wonderfully generous. Concerning all those offerings, one scholar writes, giving from a heart flowing with God's grace, whether the giving be mandatory or voluntary, has always been the ideal for God's people. So what does this grace giving look like in the New Testament? Well, according to Jesus, it starts by understanding that our treasure is not in the world, but it's up in heaven, right? Where it's free from the ups and downs of the financial market and the greedy hands of thieves and the dust and the rust of the world. And until one understands that, uh, grace giving is impossible. It's impossible because Jesus goes on to say, where your treasure is, well, that's where your heart is. Also, Luke 12, 33 and 34. So a question that we all have to ask ourselves this morning is, um, where's your heart? And a look at your bank statement will oftentimes tell us exactly where our heart is. Am I investing in the things of the world? Or am I investing in the things of heaven? If you are preeminently investing in the world, then no matter how much you have, you'll always be working with limited reserves. But if the trajectory of your giving is toward investing in the things of heaven, then no matter how little you have, you will always have unlimited reserves. So that's why one day in the temple, after watching all these rich people, Jesus is there with his followers, and they're watching the rich people give from their excess, and then a widow give everything that she has by way of two little coins. Jesus says, you know, the widow gave more than the wealthy, and she gave more than they did because she gave with her heart, and they gave out of the out of their hubris. And those subtleties don't, don't escape the Lord. Uh, my wife and I were talking about that yesterday. Well, why is that? Because the Lord doesn't see as man sees. Man sees on the outward appearance, but the Lord sees the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Well, 
So grace giving in the New Testament is very much like that in the Old Testament. It begins by recognizing that God owns everything, even what's in our bank accounts, and then living like it from the heart. So uh, to encourage this posture and the prosperous church at Corinth, Paul appeals to the struggling churches in Macedonia. And that's where we pick up with uh, 2 Corinthians 8. So turn there. If you've closed your Bibles or pull your finger out, if you've been marking them. And I want us to just observe a few things in here from that passage. First of all, there in verse 2, Paul refers to the Macedonian poverty as extreme. As extreme. A word, uh, it's the word bathos. It's, it's, it's the term from which we get the word bathysphere, which is that a submersible craft, you know, that, that is uh, sent to the bottom of the ocean to uh, survey and explore the, the deepest trenches out there. Then he refers in, uh, um, to, to the Macedonian church that their affliction as severe. In fact, the, the literal sense of the word is they were, they were pressed, they were pinched, they were being squeezed uh, by the difficulties of life. So, so the pagan culture in which they were living was testing their Christian commitments, their, their Christian sensibilities, much like our culture is doing more and more today. But even in light of these hardships, uh, look now at verses 3 and 4 there, Paul writes the Macedonian churches gave to this relief fund for the saints, not only according to their means, which were modest, not even modest, they were, they were meagerly, but beyond their means, literally contrary to their means. And they did so of their own accord. They did it voluntarily. In fact, uh, earnestly begging, Paul writes, to take part. Paul wasn't begging them. He wasn't making an appeal. He didn't have to launch some campaign. They came to him out of their poverty, and begged to take part. So, so what was the source of this bathnanimous giving of the Macedonians? Well, notice in verse 5 there that it came from them giving themselves first to the Lord and then to Paul and the need at hand, all of which the apostle refers to there in verses 6 and 7 as an act of grace. But notice in verse 9, it was all given in response to what God had first given to them. For you know of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Why did Jesus do that? You know why he did it? Because he loves us. He loves us. He who was given in love, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. He who was given to us in love also loved, like father, like son. He loved and gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Galatians 2.20 and 1.4. He Loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. He loved us and gave himself up for us that like him we too should 
walk in love. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. So like Old Testament Israel, the New Testament Macedonians understood that love and that their life and liberty both came from the Lord. And that they who were once dead in their trespasses and sins, living as it were in the iron furnace of, of sin's grasp, they were now alive in Christ. They were rich toward God, Luke 12, 21. And when your soul has been ravished by that thought, by that reality, then that natural impulse to grab is transformed, not reformed, but transformed into a supernatural tendency to give. Bountifully, thoughtfully, freely, cheerfully. All of those in chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. In fact, you, you want to know what the New Testament parameters are for giving, requirements for giving? There they are. Bountifully, thoughtfully, freely, cheerfully. And we're inspired by people who live like that, aren't we? Uh, I was a history major, so I naturally gravitate to the past when I think about these things, but I think of William Wilberforce. Here's a guy, you know, well-known MP in uh, uh, British Parliament back in the late 1700s, early uh, 1800s. Because of his love for Christ, at one point in his life, he gave up a quarter of his privileged income to charity. You think that's a lot. His cousin, Henry Thornton, gave up six-sevenths of his income to the poor. Then there was Hannah Moore. John, don't raise your hand. How many of you have ever heard of Hannah Moore? Okay, all right. Hannah Moore lived at the same time as Jane Austen and was far more popular, wildly more popular than Jane Austen in her day. Hannah Moore was the first million-selling author, and uh, she was ravished by the gospel of Christ through the influence of John Newton, who introduced her to William Wilberforce, who challenged her concerning the poverty surrounding her own home. And it changed the course of Hannah Moore's life. She was so challenged by it all that she poured a substantial portion of her fortune into the rehabilitation and the evangelization of her community. And then there was Charles Simeon, who lived on a modest stipend uh, throughout his adult years and took the, the money uh, from his inheritance and put it into a trust from which he doled out all kinds of benevolences. In fact, near the end of his life, he sold the copyright to his uh, magnum opus and uh, uh, gave all the proceeds to multiple gospel ministries. So, uh, brothers and sisters, it all really comes down to this. According to God's word, habit number one, and with his help, habit number two, we need to get out of the habit of grabbing and get into the habit of giving, grace-giving, God-like giving, sacrificially, charitably, sincerely, thoughtfully, bountifully, preeminently, like the Macedonians being the first ones uh, in, in line to give, lovingly, freely, 
cheerfully. Because if you give in those ways individually, if we give together as a church in those ways for the sake of the gospel, this fellowship is going to shine like a city set on a hill, or at least on this corner, and lead our community from hopelessness to life. Now that may be surprising to hear and to even think about, but you know what? In God's economy, not so much. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we're grabbers. And we don't even need to look at our bank statements to know where our money goes. What it is in which we are preeminently investing. Things of heaven or the things of earth. Lord, we pray that uh, your work done on our behalf uh, according to your word, and, and, and brought down on us and impressed upon us by your spirit would transform us from being grabbers to givers. Givers who minister to this neighborhood right here, this community, in a way whereby people sit up and take notice and are saved. That's our prayer this morning for this day for the week ahead. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.